Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this week's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and domestic abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. If you or a loved one are experiencing an unhealthy relationship, you can find resources and support by calling the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE or by visiting thehotline.org. It was 8 a.m. on Monday, June 15, 1959. Linda Riss combed her hair as she got ready for work still daydreaming about the engagement party she'd held the afternoon before. It had been perfect, except the surprise call from her ex-boyfriend, Bert. All he'd managed to say before she hung up was, Linda, this is your last chance. Another empty threat he was too cowardly to follow through on. The doorbell rang. A man at the door called, Package for Miss Linda Riss. It must be from her fiancé, Larry. Linda hurried down the hall as her mother unlocked the door. As soon as the door opened, a man pushed his way in, carrying a mayonnaise jar. He reached inside, raised his hand, and splashed something on Linda's face. She couldn't see what it was. She couldn't see anything. Her eyes were burning. Everything blurred. And then, it all went dark. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion on the Parcast Network. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a murder that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim? or killer and co-conspirator. If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? Last week, we followed the beginning and end of Linda Riss and Bert Pugash's romance, from their first meeting in September 1957 to their breakup in the fall of 1958. 
After a year of evading Bert's stalking and harassment, Linda got engaged to her new boyfriend, Larry, in June 1959. This week, we'll take a look at Bert's desperate, last-ditch attempt to win Linda back before it was too late. The majority of the information in this podcast comes from interviews published in Barry Steinbach's 1976 book, A Very Different Love Story. Wherever possible, Bert and Linda's recollections have been corroborated and checked against other interviews, articles, and court documents. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In January 1959, Bert Pugash gave his ex-girlfriend, 22-year-old Linda Riss, an ultimatum. Option one, she could marry him. Option two, she could sleep with him one time and he'd leave her alone for good. Or option three, what happened to Victor Rizel will happen to you. He was referring to a journalist who had been blinded by sulfuric acid a few years earlier. For the next six months, 32-year-old Bert ceaselessly stalked, harassed, and threatened Linda. She spoke to the police on multiple occasions, but they were unable or unwilling to do anything to protect her. On June 6, 1959, Bert found out that Linda was engaged to marry her new boyfriend, Larry Schwartz. Desperate, he turned to his last resort, the Victor Rizel plan. Bert reached out to an acquaintance of one of his legal clients, a petty criminal named Herd Hardin. Hardin agreed to throw acid in Linda's face for $2,000, the equivalent of about $17,000 today. Bert hoped that without her beautiful face, no other man would be interested in Linda, and without her eyesight, it would be difficult for her to live independently. Her only option would be to come crawling back to Bert. Before we continue, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. According to The Psychology of Stalking by J. Reed Malloy, an average of 25 to 35% of stalking cases, that is, people who repeatedly follow and harass another person, involve violence. After facing rejection, the stalker defends against humiliation with rage. Jealousy, a more complex emotion that infers competition for the love object, may also adhere with the goal to possess her so that no one else can have her. Once Bert realized he was about to lose Linda to another man, his jealousy drove him into desperation. At 8 a.m. on June 15th, Herd Hardin arrived at Linda's apartment, dressed as a delivery man, and threw lie in her face. By the time the neighbors heard the commotion and came over to investigate, Hardin had fled. Linda was immediately rushed to the hospital. Burns covered her entire face from her hairline to her cheeks. An eye care specialist confirmed her fate. She'd permanently lost sight in her right eye, and the damage to her left eye might be permanent as well. 
it was the worst case of eye damage he had ever seen. When the police arrived at the hospital, Linda told them she knew exactly who was responsible, Bert Pugash, the same man she'd been filing complaints against for six months. Gazing down at the once beautiful young woman who was now permanently disabled and disfigured, the doctor told Linda's mother, it would have been kinder if he killed her. Later that morning, two policemen arrived at Bert's office. They asked if he would come down to the station and talk, but Bert replied, I have nothing to say. I don't know anything about this. With nothing except Linda's word linking him to the crime, the officers couldn't detain him, but as soon as they left, Bert started panicking. When his partner came into his office a few minutes later, Bert immediately asked him if he knew any countries that didn't allow extradition. The next morning, June 16th, the World Telegram ran the headline, Girl Blinded, Lawyer Suitor Sought. It didn't mention Bert by name, but it was clear the police knew who was behind the attack. Bert spoke to a criminal defense lawyer, Harrison Steinberg, who encouraged him to commit himself to a psychiatric hospital. Bert understood that this would be the first step in an insanity defense. But after his brief forced admission to a mental hospital after a violent episode the previous Christmas, Bert refused to go back again. Steinberg persisted. Do you think you can withstand police interrogation? Do you know what the third degree is? Bert wouldn't budge, so Steinberg eventually relented. He warned Bert that his phone lines would probably be tapped by investigators, so if his accomplices called, he should hang up immediately. Sure enough, two days later, on June 18th, investigators placed wiretaps and bugs around Bert's home and office. Bert was extremely careful not to say anything incriminating, but the bottom-rung criminals he had hired for the assault didn't take the same precautions. Herd Hardin and two of his accomplices kept calling Bert to complain about not receiving their payment, and the men were quickly identified by the police. There wasn't enough evidence to arrest them yet, and if they brought the men in for questioning now, it might tip their hand and make it more difficult to reel in Bert. So instead, the investigators quietly followed and surveilled Hardin and his accomplices, hoping it might lead them to hard proof of Bert's involvement. Weeks passed, then months, and they were no closer to making any arrests. Meanwhile, Linda spent three months lying in the hospital. For the first few weeks, Linda's fiancé, Larry, sat by her bedside every day. She offered to break off the engagement, but he told her he still loved her, scars and all. But as the weeks passed, Larry came by less and less. He claimed it was too hot in the stuffy hospital room. In August, Larry came back from a weekend trip to a country club. He told her all about how much fun he'd had and all the nice girls he'd met there. Linda understood what he was too polite to say. He didn't sign up for a blind, scarred wife. But if Larry wanted to leave, he'd have to man up and say it himself. Linda held back her tears and calmly replied, Wonderful, darling. Larry kept visiting occasionally for the next month, always tacitly implying that things were over, but never mustering up the courage to say it. 
When he spoke, all Linda could hear was Bert's words replaying in her head. When I get finished with you, no one else will want you. Linda was finally released from the hospital in late September 1959. Her family and the two police officers assigned to her 24-7 protection detail moved into a new apartment with an unlisted address. Larry didn't join them. Linda began the long process of adjusting to life without her eyesight, without her fiancé, and thankfully, without Bert Pugash. She struck up a close friendship with one of the officers protecting her, Margie Powers. The investigation was still underway, but at least the police details seemed to be scaring Bert away. By the end of October, Linda hadn't heard from him in over four months. Then, she got the call. Somehow, Bert had tracked down her new, unlisted phone number. The police had figured he might do that, so they'd wired Linda's phone and coached her on what to say if he called. When Linda heard Bert's voice on the line on the morning of October 28th, she calmly, cordially listened to his pleas. I wouldn't do anything like that to you. I have enemies, and they know that the only way they can get back at me is through you. I love you, Linda, and I still want to marry you. Linda took a deep breath and said exactly what she'd been told to say. Bert, I'll marry you if you tell me who threw the lie. Bert didn't fall for it. He said goodbye, hung up, and headed off to work. He was in for a surprise. When he walked into the office, two detectives were waiting to arrest him. The police had finally gathered enough evidence to arrest Hurt Hardin and his accomplices, and they had confessed everything they knew about the blinding and Bert's role in it. It was October 28, 1959, more than four months after the attack, and Bert Pugash was finally about to face justice. Later that morning, Linda was driven down to the police station to identify Hardin. It was a strange formality, given that Linda could barely make out colors and shapes, much less identify a face. But she confirmed that Hardin's skin tone was more or less as she remembered it. Linda was being led out of the interrogation room, just as Bert was being led in, in handcuffs. She couldn't see him, but he got a silent glimpse at her for the first time since the attack. Her eye patch, dark glasses, still healing scars. Then, as quickly as she appeared, she was gone, swallowed up in a crowd of reporters and photographers. Linda kissed each of the investigators on the cheek in gratitude for their hard work. One reporter asked her what she was going to do next. She said, I don't know. The only thing I ever counted on was my looks. And now, that's gone. The next morning's papers reported that the tragic story had come to a bittersweet end. Linda was finally free from her abuser, and justice was about to be served. But the story wasn't over yet, and it was about to get a lot more complicated. We'll take a look at Bert Pugash's trial right after this. Now back to the story. In October 1959, 32-year-old Bert Pugash was arrested for ordering an attack that left Linda Riss permanently blinded. 
The next issue for the Bronx district attorney was proving that Burt was of sound mind to stand trial. On April 25, 1960, Burt was assessed by psychiatrists at Bellevue Hospital. Their report read, He expresses the view that the district attorney of Bronx County is out to prosecute him in order to make a great reputation and that the judge who presided at the trial was deliberately chosen in order to get him. He makes these statements in a manner of a paranoid individual and they appear to be delusional formations. Diagnosis, schizophrenic reaction, paranoid type. He is in such a state of insanity as to be incapable of understanding the charge, indictment, proceedings, or of making his defense. Bert had clearly been emotionally unstable in the months leading up to the attack, but his paranoid delusions were a new, sudden development. Although schizophrenia can develop at any age, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, men typically begin displaying symptoms in their late teens or early 20s. The district attorney found it oddly convenient that 33-year-old Bert had never exhibited any symptoms until right before his trial. The prosecutors began intercepting Bert's mail while he was in jail, and their suspicions were confirmed. Bert and his lawyer were discussing an insanity plea. To help them establish a history of paranoid delusions, one of Bert's old girlfriends had even been recruited to write him letters saying things like, You remember when the big rabbit used to visit you? The plan might have worked if Bert himself hadn't decided to sabotage it. If Bert was found incompetent to stand trial, he wouldn't do prison time, but his career as a lawyer would be over. But if he contested the psychiatrist's report and let the case go to trial, he thought he still had a chance of being acquitted, going back to work, and maybe even marrying Linda someday. So when Bert was called before the judge for his sanity hearing, he brought along his own psychiatrist to testify that he was completely sane. Bert easily answered a string of questions about the case without displaying any paranoia or confusion. The judge didn't go so far as to agree Bert was completely sane, but he found Bert was not in such a state of insanity as to be incapable of understanding a trial and the nature of defense. Nearly a year and a half after Bert's arrest, his trial finally began on April 11, 1961. The Bronx County Courthouse was so packed, the hallways had to be roped off to hold back the crowd. The story of the respected, upstanding attorney who'd blinded his own girlfriend had set New York City abuzz. The first witness the prosecution called was Linda Riss. She wore her usual dark glasses and a nice black dress. Burt kept his eyes locked on her the entire time. About a year earlier, Linda had undergone eye surgery and regained a bit of sight in her left eye. With her glasses, she could see well enough to notice Bert staring at her, but she held her composure throughout all six days of testimony. When the prosecutor asked Linda to show the jury her injuries, she walked close to the jury box, turned away from the crowd, took off her sunglasses, and slowly, nervously, removed her flesh-toned eye patch. One of the jurors covered his eyes in disgust. Linda's composure finally broke. She started crying. 
After five weeks of testimony, even Bert realized that his chance of acquittal was zero. The case against him was rock solid, the result of months of careful police work. Bert's entire life was slipping out of his control. He'd lose his freedom, his reputation, his career, and worst of all, his chance at winning back Linda. There was one thing that could save him now, a mistrial. On the morning of June 15, 1961, two years to the day after Linda's attack, an officer opened the courtroom side door to lead Bert out of the detention room. Bert was standing in the doorway, blood streaming from both his wrists, clutching a broken lens from his glasses. As officers tried to subdue him, he struggled out of their grip, screaming, Linda, I love you! Linda, I want you! Bert was taken to the hospital and held down, still kicking and screaming, while a doctor stitched his wound shut. One of the doctors dialed a phone number and said, I'm sending this man down. He's insane. Bert suddenly stopped screaming. He'd won. Bert later admitted that the suicide attempt was a ruse meant to delay the trial for long enough that a mistrial would be declared. The presiding judge, Joseph Martinez, figured as much, and as soon as Bert was all stitched up, he was dragged back into the courtroom, literally kicking and screaming. The trial lasted for a total of 14 weeks, making it the longest trial in the history of Bronx County at the time. When the testimony was finished in mid-July 1961, the jury only took two hours and 15 minutes to reach a verdict. They were unanimous on the first ballot. Bert Pugash was guilty on seven counts, including maiming, assault, and burglary, since Hardin had entered Linda's apartment. Another long legal battle occurred over whether Bert should be sent to prison or to a mental hospital, but the judge eventually stood by his original ruling that Bert was legally sane. On March 14, 1962, Bert, now 34, was sent to Sing Sing Correctional Facility for the start of his 15 to 30-year sentence, the maximum penalty for his charges. While delivering the sentence, Judge Martinez announced, he showed no compassion and in turn deserves none. Linda's around-the-clock protection detailed stayed with her for about a year after Bert's sentencing. This was both a blessing and a curse, on one hand, she knew she was safe from any potential retaliation from Bert. On the other hand, dating is hard enough when you're a 26-year-old blind woman in the 1960s. Add in a constant police escort and picking up men is nearly impossible. Even once the police finally bid her adieu in the spring of 1963, Linda's brief courtships never went anywhere serious. Her boyfriends tended to ditch her once she took off her dark glasses. As the 60s rolled into the 70s, Linda was creeping up into her mid-30s, and still, no one wanted to marry her. It was beginning to look like Bert's plan had succeeded. In March 1973, 11 years after he was sentenced to prison, Bert managed to get a hold of Linda's mother's unlisted phone number. When Linda answered the phone one night, she heard a familiar voice on the other line. Linda asked, Tell me, Bert, 
Do all the criminals telephone their victims these days? He replied, no, but you're my favorite victim. Linda immediately called the DA's office, urging them to do something to stop Bert from harassing her. They didn't. Bert called the next three nights in a row until Linda had the phone number changed once again. But Bert found out the new phone number too. On June 15, 1973, exactly 14 years after the attack, Linda answered the phone to hear Bert's voice on the other end. She screamed, Are you calling me to wish me well on my anniversary? Then hung up before Bert got a chance to respond. After that call, Linda sent a letter to everyone who might be able to help her. The police commissioner, mayor, governor, congressman, and more. She wrote, I am being harassed by Pugash from his prison confinement. What next? Must I die to get relief? Linda didn't receive a response to any of her letters. But two weeks later, on June 30th, she did receive a letter from Bert. He wrote, Can't you possibly consider that if I did not so much love you, I could not have caused what I did? Someday I believe you will realize that love could conquer our despair if you would permit it. According to The Psychology of Stalking by J. Reed Malloy, stalkers use techniques including denial, minimization, and projection of blame onto the victim as defense mechanisms to justify their own behavior to themselves. By insisting that everything he did was out of love, Bert minimized the seriousness of his crime and placed the blame on Linda for refusing to forgive him. Desperate and out of options, Linda did the only thing she could think of. She reported the policeman who had failed to help her to the Internal Affairs Division, hoping the complaints would stir up some action. A lieutenant agreed to go down to the prison and talk to Bert. Unfortunately, this didn't go quite as Linda had hoped. The lieutenant told Bert, quote, You have to stop calling Linda Riss. Just be patient, because I think she's going to marry you when you get out. Whether that was an attempt at reverse psychology or a genuine piece of bad advice, it only made Bert's harassment more aggressive. Since Linda wouldn't take his calls, he hired his friends to call her on his behalf and relay the message that he still loved her and wanted to help her. Linda sarcastically replied that if Bert really wanted to help her, he'd send her some money. Bert accepted the challenge. He offered to help his fellow inmates fight their charges in court in exchange for a $1,000 donation to Linda Riss. After just a few weeks, he'd collected $4,000, worth over $30,000 today. Linda couldn't be upset about the money, but she was worried about Bert's intentions. He was almost up for parole, and this looked like the perfect scheme to prove that he was a changed man. And if Bert was able to stalk and harass her from within the prison's walls, Linda couldn't imagine what he'd do once he was free. In October 1973, after ten and a half years in prison, 46-year-old Bert Pugash stood before the parole board's three commissioners. He could see copies of his letters and checks to Linda spread out on the table before them. One of the commissioners, the only woman on the panel, mentioned the checks and asked if Bert would keep supporting Linda once he was released. 
Bert replied. What happened to Miss Riss is my responsibility, and I am going to try and help her in any way I can. The commissioner asked if he would still be willing to marry Linda. Bert said, if Linda Riss would consent to marry me, it would be the happiest day of my life. A few days later, Bert was informed that he'd be released on parole in four months on March 21st, 1974. We'll take a look at Bert and Linda's reunion right after this. Now back to the story. On March 28, 1974, one week after his release from prison, Bert Pugash was interviewed by a reporter from the New York Post. When asked about his ex-girlfriend turned assault victim Linda Riss, Bert said, I want to marry Linda, but if she won't marry me, I want to take care of her. It is her wishes that count. Just minutes after the interview was published, Bert got a call from Channel 11 News. They wanted to send over a camera crew and interview him immediately. Linda caught the segment on the 10 o'clock news that night. She didn't even know Bert had been released until she saw his face on the TV. He looked directly into the camera, staring straight through her, and said, Linda, I love you and want more than anything else in this world to marry you. The NYPD was supposed to inform Linda before Bert's release, but once again, they dropped the ball. Linda immediately wrote to Bert's parole officer and demanded that he do something to protect her. The next day, Bert signed a statement promising that as a condition of his parole, he would under no circumstances contact Miss Linda Riss in any manner, shape, or form. Bert stuck to the agreement for about two months. But in May 1973, he contacted Linda's cousin, Nat Rothstein, and asked him to pass along a proposition. He offered Linda $250,000 in restitution, worth over $1.4 million today, to be paid in weekly $50 increments. He also asked if Linda would be interested in signing an affidavit to support his lawsuit to win back his law license, since in his words, the more I earn, the larger will be my contribution to Linda's support. Linda was wary of taking the deal. He clearly had an agenda, and she was afraid any contact with Bert, even through their lawyers, might be opening Pandora's box again. Linda asked her friends, and they all told her to shut up and take the money. She still wasn't convinced, so she sought an outside opinion. She set up an appointment with a fortune teller. Linda wasn't a total believer in mysticism, but her mother, Bertha, had sworn by fortune tellers for decades. Linda went in and sat across from the fortune teller as she laid out the spread of cards. The old woman turned the cards over one by one. She said, There was a dark man in your life. He's been away for a very long time. When I think of him, tears come to my eyes. He's so sad, this man and he loves you very, very much. Then, the old woman reached across the table and grasped her hands. Staring straight into her eyes, she said, I want you to listen to me and remember what I say to you. I don't care what anyone else tells you. You marry this man. When Linda went back outside, 
she told her mother what the fortune teller had said. Bertha paused, then replied, Well, they're not always right. Linda spent the next few days deliberating, as much as she wanted to forget about Bert. Now that he'd wormed his way back into her life, she couldn't push him from her mind. On an impulse, late one night in May 1973, she dialed the phone number her attorney had passed along. On the other end, Bert answered, Hello? Linda thought back to all the threatening late-night calls Bert had made almost 15 years earlier. Now, she was the one in control, and it felt good. She just listened, silently as his voice grew more frantic. Hello? Hello? Then she whispered, I'm gonna get you. Linda eventually agreed to accept Bert's money, though she still refused to speak to him directly. By June, he'd been out of prison for three months and hadn't done anything to harm Linda. And for reasons Linda could never explain to herself, a part of her missed Bert. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, on average, women return to abusive relationships seven times before leaving for good. Jennifer Hardesty, an assistant professor at the University of Illinois, said that when women leave, the emotions often come back. They want to be physically and emotionally connected again. For Linda, her days had been lonely and routine for the past decade. She knew Bert could be terribly abusive, but at least he added some excitement into her life. As long as she kept him at an arm's length away, she figured she would be safe. By July of 1974, Bert's weekly checks stopped arriving. Linda guessed that he'd stop sending the checks so that she would have to call him personally to see what had happened. Her suspicions were confirmed when, after four weeks, Bert told Linda's cousin Nat that he'd increase the payments to $100 a week if Linda agreed to speak to him. Linda wasn't going to fall for it, but some of her friends thought Bert had the right idea. Linda had remained friends with one of the policewomen who had been assigned to her protection detail, Sergeant Margie Powers. For the past 15 years, Margie had watched Linda struggle through first date after first date, never finding someone who would stick around once the eye patch came off. Linda was 37 now, and if she didn't find a man soon, she'd end up a lonely old spinster. The worst imaginable fate in Margie's eyes. There was only one solution. She had to get Linda and Bert back together. Margie couldn't speak to Bert directly, as it's against the law for police sergeants to fraternize with convicted felons. Instead, she asked Linda's friend Rita to call Bert and set up a reunion. Rita agreed. She'd always liked Bert, until the lie incident, at least. So in late August 1974... Rita called Bert and invited him over for dinner. He jumped at the chance. Linda took a little more convincing. She was still terrified of Bert, but she thought seeing him one time might be enough to get the weekly payments rolling again. And truth be told, she was curious. Maybe Bert really had changed in the 15 years since she'd last seen him. Eventually, she relented and agreed to meet Bert for dinner as long as Rita came along. 
On the evening of Saturday, September 14, 1974, Linda sat waiting at Rita's apartment, all dolled up in her nicest dress, a perfectly styled wig, to cover up the bald spot where the lie burned her hairline, and her signature dark glasses. The moment the doorbell rang, her chest tightened. She stood in the dining room doorway as Rita let Bert inside. She could barely make out the form striding across the room right up to her. Suddenly, his lips were on hers. She was shocked, but too scared to try and wriggle out of his grasp. Once he let her go, Bert pulled out a jewelry box and placed a big diamond ring on her finger. Linda told him they were not getting married. Bert replied, Okay, don't call it an engagement ring, but I want you to have it. Linda didn't argue. They headed out to a restaurant. Linda was on edge through the entire meal. Rita later recalled, It was a rough, rough night. Bert was still the same hyper-lunatic that he had been 15 years before. Hysterical, talking, 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 and Linda was the same defensive, ungiving person she'd always been. But Linda's defenses fell away when they started talking about their past, the good times, before everything went off the rails. Linda wasn't sure if she ever loved Bert, but she did like the attention he gave her. And after 15 years alone, she missed it. When they got back to the apartment, Rita went to bed and left the two former lovebirds to talk in privacy. Bert kept pleading for Linda to marry him, and Linda kept telling him not to rush her. Bert stood up and began pacing the room, tears welling up in his eyes. He begged Linda not to torture him like this. Finally, Bert realized his tantrum wasn't going to work. Instead, he sat down and wrote out a check for $50. There it was, the real reason for the reunion. Linda lifted a magnifying glass she kept on a chain around her neck and squinted down at the check. After a moment, she said, This is no good, Bert. You promised to give me $100 a week if I got in touch with you. Bert gaped at her in disbelief then wrote out another check. He went home certain that Linda had just been stringing him along for the money. After Bert left, Linda stayed up for a few hours talking to Rita's teenage daughter, Andrea. Andrea pointed out how nervous Bert had been all night. He clearly wanted to make a good impression, and if he was too pushy, it was only because he loved her. Linda was torn, on one hand, she thought Andrea might be right. Maybe she'd been too quick to condemn Bert. On the other hand, Bert had paid a man to throw a lie in her face. It's hard to let something like that go. Linda devised a test to see how much Bert really loved her, a test none of her other ex-boyfriends had been able to pass. She invited Bert back to Rita's apartment for breakfast the next morning. He'd get to see the real Linda without her makeup, her wig, or her glasses and eye patch. When Bert saw Linda that morning, he thought she looked beautiful as ever. For all his aggressiveness, Bert was the only man who accepted Linda for who she really was, for the scars he had inflicted on her. With the encouragement of her friends, Linda gave Bert her office phone number. 
By the next week, they were back to their old routine, seeing each other nearly every moment of every day. It was just like the early days of their relationship, before the constant fighting started. She kept turning down his marriage proposals, but at 37 years old, Linda knew Bert was probably the only husband she'd ever get. She saw two options laid out before her. Either live the rest of her life bored and alone, or take a chance and marry Bert. So, on November 27, 1974, just two months after their reunion, Bert and Linda went down to Queens County Courthouse to make their partnership official. They had to ask five judges before they found one who would agree to perform the ceremony. It had been over 10 years since Bert's trial, but the case still hadn't faded from the public memory. Linda recalled, This marriage pretty much shocked me more than it shocked the whole world. I didn't know what I was doing until it happened. Problems appeared just four days into their Las Vegas honeymoon. During their 15 years apart, Linda had lost her virginity, something she told Bert shortly after they started seeing each other again. He'd been upset, but he'd never picked a serious fight about it until now. When Bert and Linda got back to their hotel room after a day of gambling, Bert unloaded, screaming at Linda about her sexual past until she was in tears. He asked, Why did you come back to me like this, defiled? For Linda, the reality of her situation immediately came crashing down. She'd walked right back into the abusive relationship she'd been trapped in before, and this time, it was legally binding. Choking back tears, she said, I hoped you would change, Bert. I made a mistake, and I'm going to pay for it. For the next few months, Bert and Linda's marriage was, by their own estimate, 90% happy. One friend commented that the newlyweds were definitely outwardly the happiest couple of any I know our age. The other 10% of their relationship was arguing and verbal abuse. Even months after the wedding, Bert was still upset about Linda's sexual experience. According to Bert, he couldn't stand the thought that she might be comparing him to other men in bed. One night in early 1975, Bert and Linda hosted a party at their apartment. Bert doted on Linda all night, fetching her drinks, never letting her out of his sight. That is, until Linda started telling a funny story that involved a man she'd briefly dated while Bert was in prison. Bert was silent and tense for the rest of the night. Rita stayed after the party to help clean up. As soon as Linda went to bed, she heard Bert screaming in a rage. That whore, that slut. Rita ignored it, assuming he'd be over it by the morning. Unfortunately, even if Bert was over it by morning, the arguments always began again the next night. Somewhat ironically, Bert berated Linda for being a whore just as frequently and viciously as he'd once berated her for refusing to sleep with him before marriage. Any aspect of Linda's life that was out of his control was a problem for Bert. Still, Linda never tried to get out of the marriage. When the couple sat down with author Barry Stainback in February 1975 to turn their sensational story into a memoir, 
Linda seemed resigned to her fate. She said, I handled a bad situation in a terrible way. This would never have happened to a smarter, more mature girl. I really screwed up. I have to assume some of the responsibility because I erred badly in so many ways just because I didn't know any better. In 1979, Ronnie Janoff Bullman theorized that women in abusive relationships blame themselves as a coping mechanism to increase their own sense of control over their situation. Paradoxically, a 2000 study by Melanie L. O'Neill and Patricia K. Kerrig found that self-blame was actually correlated with lower levels of perceived control and increased symptoms of depression. Unfortunately, Linda's self-assessment was incorrect. Anyone can fall into the trap of domestic violence, regardless of their age, intelligence, or life experience. In 1997, 70-year-old Bert Pugash was called to court once again for sexually abusing, harassing, and threatening his mistress, 42-year-old Evangeline Borgia. According to court documents, Bert and Evangeline carried on an affair for five years. When Evangeline tried to end the relationship, Bert responded by stalking her, repeatedly calling her, attempting to bribe her with $1 million, and ultimately threatening to kill her. Shockingly, Linda Pugash herself took the stand to defend Bert as a wonderful, caring husband. She agreed with the defense's counter-argument that Evangeline had made up the charges as an act of revenge after Bert broke up with her. It may have been easier for her to believe the fiction than to admit that the man she'd married was the same monster he'd always been. In the end, Bert was convicted of only one charge, second-degree harassment, and sentenced to a mere 15 days in jail. After the disappointing verdict was read, Queens County District Attorney Richard Brown said, My hope is that this will not deter other victims of domestic violence from seeking help. We are prepared to expend whatever time and effort necessary for the protection of domestic violence. Bert and Linda Pugash remained married for over 38 years until Linda's death in 2013 at the age of 75. Over the decades, countless books, articles, and even a documentary film have tried to answer one question. Why? Linda was never able to give a satisfactory explanation for why she married Bert. Psychology can help us understand how the cycle of domestic abuse works, but these general theories don't necessarily apply to every real-world situation. What's obvious is that Bert and Linda's relationship was based on manipulation, abuse, and violence. Bert's behavior was brushed off by Linda's friends, who saw his obsession as romantic, by the police, who took no steps to keep Bert away from Linda, and by Linda herself, who accepted the blame for the violence she was subjected to. It's also been excused by the many reporters, writers, and filmmakers who have chosen to portray the Pugash's relationship as a bizarre, twisted love story instead of as a portrait of domestic abuse. If we can learn anything from the story, it's that violence, stalking, and coercion should never be excused as examples of love, and that darkness can lurk in the corners of any relationship even in the long marriage of a doting elderly couple, 
like Bert and Linda Pugash. Thanks again for tuning in to Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Crimes of Passion is written by Kate Gallagher. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>